0: Hi everyone, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. For those of you who've listened to Sleepy, welcome back. And for anyone who's new, welcome. I really hope this helps you snooze and doze off into a deep, deep slumber. The show itself has been getting more followers by the day, and it's really amazing to see how fast the show is growing. So if you've listened before, or this is your first time and it ends up working for you, just go to iTunes really quick and leave a rating, and you can also leave a book that you'd like to hear on Sleepy in one of the reviews. Leaving the reviews helps the show get mentioned, and it makes it easier for other people who are having trouble sleeping. It helps them find the show. It only takes a second, and it would mean a lot. Thank you. And also, just because I hope that you're going to be asleep by the end of this, the music that you're hearing right now is by my good friend James Lubkowski, who's playing this on um, a little guitar ukulele thing that he made. We're in the thick of summer, and I don't know why, but adventure's been on my mind. Even in dreams, I feel that Everything has been way more about walking out the door and doing something unexpected and doing things that you might necessarily not do in your normal lives. Which is why tonight I'm going to be reading Don Quixote by Cervantes. It's a wild story about a madman who walks out his door and fulfills his dreams. His dreams are being a knight a chivalrous knight and fighting injustice but which i guess could be you know a modern dream as well but even though i know he's crazy i'm kind of jealous he just picked up his stuff and he went kind of inspiring regardless it's a really really good book to go to sleep to it gives you really good dreams so hop into your bed and get as comfy as you possibly can. Lay your head back, figure yourself sink into your pillow, close your eyes, and let me read to you. In a village in La Mancha, the name of which I cannot quite recall, There lived not long ago, one of those country gentlemen or Hidalgos who keep a lance in a rack, an ancient leather shield, a scrawny hack and a greyhound for coursing. A midday stew with rather more shin of beef than leg of lamb, the leftovers for supper most nights, lardy eggs on Sundays, lentil broth on Fridays, and an occasional pigeon as a Sunday treat ate up three quarters of his income. The rest went on a cape of black broadcloth with breeches of velvet and slippers to match for holy days, and on weekdays he walked proudly in the finest homespun. He maintained a housekeeper the wrong side of forty, a niece the right side of twenty, and a jack-of-all-trades who was good at saddling the nag as at plying with pruning shears. Our Hidalgo himself was nearly fifty. He had a robust constitution, dried-up flesh and a withered face, and he was an early riser and a keen huntsman. His surname said to have been Quijada, or Quesada, as if he were a jawbone or a cheesecake. Concerning this detail, there is some discrepancy among the authors who have written on the subject, although a credible conjecture does suggest he might have been a planet of But this doesn't matter much, as far as our story is concerned, provided that the narrator doesn't stray one inch from the truth. Now you must understand that during his idle moments, which accounted for most of the year, this Hidalgo took to reading books of chivalry with such relish and enthusiasm that he almost forgot about his hunting and even running his property, and his foolish curiosity reached such extremes that he sold acres of arable land to buy these books of chivalry and took home as many of them as he could find. He liked none of them so much as those by the famous Feliciano de Silva, because the brilliance of the prose and all that intricate language seemed a treasure to him, never more so than when he was reading those amorous compliments and challenges delivered by letter, in which he often found, the reason for the unreason to which my reason is subjected, so weakens my reason that I have reason to complain of your beauty. And also when he read, the lofty heavens which with their stars divinely fortify you in your divinity, and make you meritus of the merits merited by your greatness. Such subtleties used to drive the poor gentleman to distraction, and he would rack his brains trying to understand it all and unravel its meaning, something that Aristotle himself wouldn't have been capable of doing even if he'd come back to life for this purpose alone. He wasn't very happy about the wounds that Sir Belianus kept on inflicting and receiving, because he imagined that, however skillful the doctors who treated him, His face and body must have been covered with gashes and scars. But in spite of all that, he commended the author for ending his book with that promise of endless adventure, and often felt the urge to take up his quill and bring the story to a proper conclusion, as is promised there. And no doubt he'd have done so, and with success too, if other more important and insistent preoccupations hadn't prevented him. He had frequent arguments with the village priest, a learned man, a Siguenza graduate no less. A Siguenza graduate no less. About which had been the better knight-errant, Marin of England, or Amidus of Gaul. But Master Nicholas, the village barber, argued that neither of them could hold a candle to the knight of Phoebus, and that if anyone at all could be compared to him, it was Don Galler, Amadis of Gaul's brother, because there was no emergency he couldn't cope with He wasn't one of your pernickety knights, nor was he such a blubberer as his brother, and he was every bit his equal as far as courage was concerned. In short, our Hidalgo was soon so absorbed in these books that his nights were spent reading from dusk till dawn, and his days from dawn till dusk, until the lack of sleep and the excess of reading withered his brain and he went mad. Everything he read in his books took possession of his imagination, Enchantments, fights, battles, challenges, wounds, sweet nothings, love affairs, storms, and impossible absurdities. The idea that this whole fabric of famous fabrications was real so established itself in his mind that no history in the world was truer for him. He would declare that El Cid, Ruy Diaz, had been an excellent knight, but that he couldn't be compared to the knight of the burning sword. Who, with just one backstroke, had split two fierce and enormous giants clean down the middle? He felt happier about Bernardo del Carpio, because he'd slain Roland the Enchanted at Roncesvalles by the same method used by Hercules when he suffocated Antaeus, the son of Earth, with a bear hug. He was full of praise for the giant Morgante, because, despite belonging to a proud and insolent breed, he alone was affable. And well mannered. But his greatest favorite was Reynald of Montalban, most of all when he saw him sallying forth from his castle and plundering all those he met, and when in foreign parts he stole that image of Mohammed made of solid gold, as his history records, he'd have given his housekeeper and even his niece into the bargain to trample the traitor Ganelon in the dust. And so, By now quite insane, he conceived the strangest notion that ever took shape in a madman's head, considering it desirable and necessary, both for the increase of his honor and for the common good, to become a knight-errant, and to travel about the world with his armor and his arms and his horse in search of adventures, and to practice all those activities that he knew from his books were practiced by knight-errants, redressing all kinds of grievances and exposing himself to perils and dangers that he would overcome and thus gain eternal fame and renown the poor man could already see himself being crowned emperor of Trebizond, at the very least through the might of his arm and so possessed by these delightful delights and carried away by the strange pleasure that he derived from them he hastened to put into practice what he so desired his first step was to clean a suit of armor that had belonged to his forefathers, and that covered in rust and mold had been standing forgotten in a corner for centuries. He scoured and mended it as best he could, yet he realized it had one important defect, which was that the headpiece was not a complete helmet, but just a simple steel cap. He was ingenious enough, however, to overcome this problem, constructing out of cardboard something resembling a visor and face guard which, once inserted into the steel cap, gave it the appearance of a full helmet. It's true that to test its strength and to find out whether it could be safely exposed to attack, he drew his sword and dealt it two blows, with the first of which he destroyed in a second what it had taken him a week to create. He couldn't help being concerned about the ease with which he'd shattered it, and to guard against this danger, he reconstructed it, fixing some iron bars on the outside which reassured him about its strength, and preferring not to carry out further tests, he deemed and pronounced it a most excellent visored helmet. Then he went to visit his nag, and although it had more corns than a barley field, and more wrong with it than Gonella's horse, which tantum Pallas et ossa fuit, it seemed to him that neither Alexander's Bucephalus nor Cid's Babiaca was its equal. He spent four days considering what name to give the nag for he told himself it wasn't fitting that the horse of such a famous knight errant and such a fine horse in its own right too shouldn't have some name of eminence so he tried to find one that would express both what it had been before it became a knight's horse and what it was now for it was appropriate that since its master had changed his rank it too should change its name and acquire a famous and much-trumpeted one as suited the new order and new way of life he professed. And so, after a long succession of names that he invented, eliminated, and struck out, he added, deleted, and remade in his mind and in his imagination, and he finally decided to call it Rocinante, that is, Hakafor, a name which, in his opinion, was lofty and sonorous and expressed what the creature had been when it was a humble hack before it became what it is now, the first and foremost of all hacks in the world. Having given his horse a name and won so much to his liking, he decided to give himself a name as well. And this problem kept him busy for another eight days, at the end of which he decided to call himself Don Quixote, that is, Sir Thipes, from which, as he already had as he had already been observed, the authors of this most true history concluded that his surname must have been Quijada, and not Quesada, as others had affirmed. Yet remembering that brave Amadis hadn't been content to call himself Amadis alone, but he added the name of his kingdom and his homeland to make it famous, and had styled himself Amadis of Gaul. So Don Quixote, as a worthy knight, decided to add his own country to his name and call himself Don Quixote de la Mancha. He declared in a most vivid manner both his lineage and his homeland, and honored the latter by taking it as a surname. Having then cleaned his armor, turned his steel cap into a visored helmet, baptized his nag, and confirmed himself, he realized that the only remaining task was to find a lady of whom he could be enamored. For a knight-errant without a lady-love is a tree without leaves or fruit, a body without a soul. He said to himself, If, for my wicked sins or my good fortune, I encounter some giant, as knights errant usually do, and I dash him down in single combat, or cleave him asunder, or in short, defeat and vanquish him, will it not be proper to have someone to whom I can send him as a tribute, so that he can come before my sweet lady, and fall to his knees and say in humble tones of submission, I, my lady, am the giant Caraculiombro, the lord of the isle of Maladrania, vanquished in single combat by the never sufficiently praised knight Don Quixote de la Mancha, who has commanded me to present myself before your highness, so that your highness may dispose of me as you will. Oh my, how our worthy knight rejoiced once he had spoken these words, even more once he'd found someone he could call his lady the fact was or so it generally believed that in a nearby village there lived a good-looking peasant girl with whom he'd been once in love although it appears that she was never aware of this love about which he never told her she was called Aldonza she was called Aldonza Lorenzo and this was the woman upon whom it seemed appropriate to confer the title of the lady of his thoughts, and seeking a name with some affinity with his own, which would also suggest the name of a princess and a fine lady, he decided to call her Dolce del Taboso, because she was a native of El Taboso, a name that in his opinion was musical and magical and meaningful, like all the other names he bestowed himself and his possessions. Chapter 2 concerning the ingenious Don Quixote's first Sally. Once he'd made these preparations, he decided not to wait any longer before putting his plans into action. Encouraged by the need that he believed his delay was creating in the world, so great was his determination to redress grievances, right wrongs, correct injustices, rectify abuses, and fulfill obligations. And so, without telling anyone about his plans or being seen by anyone one morning, before dawn, because it was going to be one of those sweltering July days, he donned his armor, mounted Rocinante, with his ill-devised visor in place, took up this leather shield, seized his lance, and rode out into the field through the side door in a yard wall, in raptures of joy on seeing how easy it had been to embark upon his noble enterprise. But no sooner was he outside the door than he was assailed by a terrible thought, which almost made him abandon his undertaking. He remembered that he hadn't been knighted, and by the laws of chivalry, shouldn't and indeed couldn't take up arms against any knight, and that even if he had been knighted, he would, as a novice, have been obliged to bear white arms, that is to say a shield without any insignia on it, until he'd won them by his own prowess. These thoughts made him waver in his plans, but since his madness prevailed over all other considerations, He decided to have himself knighted by the first person he chanced upon, in imitation of many others who had done the same, as he would read in the books that had reduced him to this state. As for the white arms, he resolved to give his lance and his armor such a scouring as soon as the opportunity arose as to make them cleaner and whiter than ermine, and thus he calmed down and continued his chosen way, which in reality was none other than the way his horse chose to follow. For he believed that this consisted the essence of adventure as our fledgling adventurer rode along he said to himself who can doubt but that in future times when the true history of my famous deeds see the light the sage who chronicles them will when he recounts this first sally so early in the morning right in this manner scarce had ruddy apollo spread over the face of the wide and spacious earth the golden tresses of his beauteous hair and scarce had the speckled little birds with their harmonious tongues hailed in musical and mellifluous melody the approach of rosy aurora, who, rising from her jealous husband's soft couch, disclosed herself to mortals in the portals and balconies of La Mancha's horizon, when the famous knight, Don Quixote de La Mancha, quitting the slothful feathers of his bed, mounted his famous steed Rocinante, and began to ride over the ancient, far-famed plain of Montiel and it was true that this is where he was riding and he added happy will be the age the century will be happy which brings to light my famous exploits worthy to be engraved on sheets of bronze carved on slabs of marble and painted on boards of wood as a monument for all posterity O sage enchanter whomever you may be to whom it falls to the chronicler of this singular story, I beg you not to overlook my good Rocinante, my eternal companion in all my travels and wanderings. Then he turned and said, as if he really were in love, O Princess Dulcinea, mistress of this hapless heart, great injury have you done to me reproaching and dismissing me with the cruel command not to appear in the presence of your wondrous beauty. Vouchsafe, my lady, to be mindful of this your subject heart, which suffers such sorrow for love of you." He strung these absurdities together with many others, all in the style of those that he learned from his books. This made his progress so slow, and the sun was rising so fast and becoming so hot that his brains would have melted if he'd had any. He rode on almost throughout the day, and nothing happened worth mentioning which reduced him to despair because he was longing for an early encounter with someone on whom he could test the worth of his mighty arm. Some authors say that the first adventure that befell him was that of the Pass of La Others claim that it was that of the windmills. But what I've been able to discover about this matter, and indeed what I've found recorded in the Annals of La Mancha, is that he rode on throughout the day, and that at nightfall both he and his nag were exhausted and half dead from starvation and that looking all around to see if he could spot some castle her shepherd's hut where they might retire and find some remedy for their great hunger and dire want he caught sight of an inn not far from the road along which he was traveling which was as if he had seen a star leading him not to the portals but to the very palace of his redemption he quickened his pace and he reached the inn as night was falling sitting by the inn door there happened to be two young women of the sort known as Ladies of Virtue on their way to Seville with some muleteers who chanced to break their journey that night in the inn. And since whatever our adventurer thought, saw or imagined seemed to him to be as it was in the books that he'd read, as soon as he saw the inn, he took it for a castle with its four towers and their spires of shining silver complete with its drawbridge and its deep moat and all the other accessories that such castles commonly boast. He approached the inn that he took for a castle, and at a short distance from it he drew rein, waiting for some dwarf to appear upon the battlements and announce with a trumpet blast the arrival of a knight. But finding that there was some delay, and that Rocinante was impatient to get to the stable, he rode on towards the inn door, and saw the two dissolute wenches sitting there, and thought that they were two beautiful maidens, or fine ladies, taking their ease at the castle gate. At this point, a swineherd, who was gathering together some pigs, begging nobody's pardon because that's what they're called, from a stubble field happened to sound his horn to round them up, and Don Quixote thought this was his wish that had been fulfilled, and that a dwarf was announcing his arrival. So it was with unusual satisfaction that he reached the inn, and the ladies, who, unobserving the approach of a man dressed like that in armor and clutching a lance and a leather shield, started to run in terror back into the inn. But Don Quixote, conjecturing their fear from their flight and raising his cardboard visor to reveal his dry and dusty face, addressed them with courteous demeanor and tranquil voice. Flee not, nor fear the least affront, For in the order of knighthood, which I profess it neither belongs nor behoves to offer any such, much less to high-born maidens, as your presence testifies you to be. The girls had been peering at him and trying to make out his face, hidden behind the ill maid visor, and when they heard themselves called maidens, a term so much at odds with their profession, they couldn't contain their laughter, which was so hearty that Don Quixote flared up and exclaimed, moderation befits the fair furthermore laughter which springs from you a petty cause is a great folly but i say this unto you not to grieve you nor yet to sour your disposition for mine is none other than to serve you this language which the ladies didn't understand together with the sorry figure cut by the knight, only redoubled their laughter and his wrath and things would have come to a pretty pass if it hadn't been for the appearance, at that moment, of the innkeeper, a man who, being very fat, was very peaceable, and who, on seeing such an ungainly figure, with such ill matched equipment as the long stirrups, the lance, the leather shield, and the infantryman's body armor, was more than willing to join the maidens in their merrymaking. But he was also intimidated by all these paraphernalia in deciding to address the knight in a civil manner. He said, "'If, Sir Caballero, "'you're looking for somewhere to stay for the night, "'you'll find plenty of everything you need here. "'All except a bed, that is. "'We haven't got any of those.'" Don Quixote, observing the humility of the governor of the castle, for they were what he took the innkeeper and the inn to be, replied, "'For me, Sir Castellano,' Anything will suffice because my arms are my bed hangings and my wrists the bloody fray. The host thought that Don Quixote had called him Castellano because he'd taken him for one of the Castilian conmen, whereas in reality he was an Andalusian, a prime picaroon for the playa district of San Lucar, no less a thief than Caicos, and no less an evildoer than any experienced page boy, and he replied, In that case, your bed must be the hard, hard rock, and your sleep to watch till day. And that being so, you go ahead and dismount in the certainty of finding in this humble abode plenty of opportunities not to sleep for a whole year, let alone one night. And with these words, he went and held Don Quixote's stirrup, and the knight dismounted with the greatest difficulty, not having broken his fast all day long. Then he instructed the innkeeper to take great care of his horse, for a finer steed had never eaten barley. The innkeeper looked at the animal, which didn't seem half as good as Don Quixote had claimed, and after housing it in the stable, went back to receive orders from his guest, whom the maidens, now reconciled, were helping out of his armor. Although they'd taken off his breastplate and backplates, they couldn't fathom how to disengage his gorget or remove his imitation visor, tied on with green ribbons that would have to be cut, since it was impossible to undo the knots. But he would by no means consent to this, and kept his helmet on all night, making the funniest and strangest figure imaginable. As these trollops unarmed him, he, thinking they were illustrious ladies of the castle, wittily declaimed, and never sure was any knight so served by damsel or dame, as Quixote was one happy night when from his village first he came. Maids waited on that man of might, princesses on his steed, whose name is Rocinante, good ladies, and mine is Don Quixote de la Mancha. For although I intended not to discover myself until the deeds of done of your benefit and service should have made me known, yet the necessity to accommodate this ancient ballad of Sir Lancelot to our present purpose has been the occasion of your knowing my name, ere it were met. But a time will come when you will command, and I shall obey, and when the might of this arm will manifest the desire, and when the might of this arm will manifest the desire I have to serve you. The girls, who weren't used to such rhetorical flourishes, didn't answer, but just asked if he'd like a bite to eat. I would fain eat anything, replied Don Quixote. For by my troth much good would it do me it happened to be friday so there was no food in the inn except a few helpings of what is known in castile as abadejo in andalusia as bacayo, and in other parts of spain as curadillo in other words the humble salt cod and in these parts it was strangely called trutuela they asked him if he'd like some of this troutling because that was all the fish there was If you have a goodly number of troutlings, replied Don Quixote, they will serve me as well as a trout, because it makes no difference to me whether I am given eight separate reels or a single piece of eight. What is more, it might even be that these troutlings are like veal, which is better than beef, or like kid, which is better than goat, but whatever the fish is, let it be served, for the travails and the burden of arms cannot be borne on an empty stomach. A table was set at the door of the inn, where it was cooler, and the innkeeper brought a dish of inadequately soaked and worse cooked salt cod, and a loaf of bread as black and moldy as the Hidalgo's armor, and it was a source of great mirth to watch him eat, because since he was wearing his helmet and holding up his visor, he couldn't put food in his mouth with his own hands, and somebody else had to do so for him, a task performed by one of the ladies. But when they tried to give him some drink, they found this an impossible task, and he wouldn't have drunk a drop if the innkeeper hadn't bored a hole through the length of cane and put one end at his mouth and poured wine into the other. And Don Quixote suffered it all with great patience, so as not to allow his helmet ribbons to be cut. In the midst of these activities, a sow-jelder happened to arrive at the inn, and as he did so, he sounded his panpipes for four, five times, which convinced Don Quixote that he was indeed in some famous castle and that he was being served to the accompaniment of music and that the salt caught was trout and the bread baked from the whitest wheat flour the prostitutes fine ladies and the innkeeper a lord of the castle and it all confirmed that his decision to sally forth had been a wise one yet what most bothered him was that he hadn't yet been knighted because he knew that he couldn't lawfully embark on any adventure without first having admitted to the order of chivalry. Chapter 3 Which relates the amusing way in which Don Quixote had himself knighted. And so, troubled by this thought, Don Quixote made short work of his meager lodging-house supper, and then called for the innkeeper, and shutting himself up within the stable, fell upon his knees before him and said, I shall never, O valorous knight, Arise from where I kneel, until your courtesy vouchsafes me a boon which I desire to beg of you, and which will redound to your own praise and to the benefit of humankind. The innkeeper, seeing his guest at his feet and hearing such pleadings, gazed down upon him in perplexity, not knowing what to do or say, and kept telling him to stand up, but he kept refusing, and the innkeeper had to promise to grant his request. No less did I expect from your munificence, sir, replied Don Quixote. Know therefore that the boon which I have begged, and which your liberality has vouchsafed me, is that tomorrow you shall knight me, and tonight, in the chapel of this, your castle, I will keep your vigil of arms, and tomorrow, as I have said, what I so desire shall be accomplished, so that I can legitimately roam through our four corners of the world in quest of adventures for the relief of the needy, as is the duty of chivalry, and of knights errant, such as I, whose desire towards such exploits is inclined. The innkeeper, who, as I've said, was something of a wag, and had already suspected that his guest wasn't in his right mind, found his suspicion confirmed when he heard these words, and to have something to laugh at at night, decided to humor him. So he said that he was quite right to pursue these objectives, and that such desires were natural and fitting in such a knight as he seemed to be, and as his gallant presence testified, and that he himself in his younger days had followed the same honorable profession, roaming through different parts of the world in search of adventure, without omitting to visit such districts as Percelli's, and Islas de Riaran in Malaga, Compas in Seville, Azuela in Segovia, olivera in Valencia. Rondilla in Granada, Playa in Sanlúcar, Potro in Cordova and Ventillas in Toledo, and many other places where he'd exercised the dexterity of his hands and the nimbleness of his heels, doing many injuries, wooing many widows, ruining a few maidens and swindling a few orphans, and in short, making himself known in the most law courts and tribunals in Spain, and that he'd finally retired to his castle, where he lived on his own means, and on those of others, accommodating all knights errant, whatever their status or position, solely because of the great affection he felt for them, and so that they could share their wealth with him to repay him for his kindness. He also told Don Quixote that in his castle there wasn't any chapel where he could keep a vigil of arms, because it had been demolished to build a new one, but he knew that in case of need, the vigil might be kept anywhere, and Don Quixote could do so that night in a courtyard in the castle and in the morning god willing the proper ceremonies would be performed to make him a knight so very thoroughly that no knight in the whole wide world could be more into a knight than he he asked Don Quixote if he had money on him Don Quixote replied that he did not have so much as a single real because he had never read in histories of knight's errant that any of them ever carried money to this, the innkeeper retorted that he was deluding himself, even if it wasn't written in the histories, because their authors had considered that there wasn't any need to record something so obviously necessary as money or clean shirts. That wasn't any reason to believe that they traveled without supplies of both, so we could take it as true and proven that all knights errand, of which so many books are full to overflowing, kept their purses well lined in readiness for any eventuality and that they also carried shirts and small chests full of ointments for curing the wounds that they received, because there wasn't always someone available to treat them in every field or desert where they engaged in combat and were injured, unless they had some wise enchanter for a friend, and he came to their aid summoning through the air on some cloud, a damsel or a dwarf with a flask of water of such magical properties that, on tasting just one drop, they were instantly cured of their wounds and injuries, as if they had never been hurt. But just in case this didn't happen, the knights of old considered it wise to see that their squires were provided with money and other necessities such as lint and ointments to address their wounds. And if any such knight happened to have a squire, a most unusual occurrence, he himself would carry all these supplies in his small saddlebags that were scarcely visible. On the crupper of his steed, as if they were something else of much greater importance, because, except in such circumstances, carrying saddlebags was rather frowned upon among knights errant. And the innkeeper therefore advised Don Quixote, although he could, if he wished, command him as the godson that he was about to become, never again to travel without any money and all other supplies just mentioned. And he discovered, when he least expected it, how useful they could be. Don Quixote promised to do exactly as he'd been told, and then he was given orders to keep the vigil of arms in a large yard on one side of the inn, and he gathered his armor together and placed it on the water trough next to the well, and taking up his leather shield and seizing his lance, he began with stately bearing to pace back and forth in front of the trough, and as his pacing began, night was beginning to fall. The innkeeper told everybody in the hostelry about the guest's insanity, his vigil, and his nighting that he waited. They wondered at such a strange kind of madness, and went to watch him from a distance, and saw that, with a composed air, he sometimes paced to and fro, and, at other times, leaning on his lance, gazed at his armor without looking away for some while. Night fell, but the moon was so bright that it competed with the source of its brightness and every action of that novice knight could be clearly observed by all. And now one of the muleteers staying at the end decided to water his animal, and to do so he had to remove from the trough the armor placed there by Don Quixote, who, on seeing him approach, cried out, O rash knight, whomever you may be, coming to lay hands on the armor of the most valiant knight-errant, whoever girded sword, take care of what you do, and touch it not unless you wish to pay for your life for your temerity. The muleteer wouldn't toe the line. It would have been better for the rest of his anatomy if he had. Instead, grasping the armor by its straps, he hurled it to one side. When Don Quixote saw this, he raised his eyes to heaven, fixing his thoughts, as it seemed, on his lady, Dulcinea. He said, "'Assist me, dear lady, in this first affront suffered by this breast,' That is enthralled to you. Let not your favor and your succor abandon me in this first moment of peril. And with these and other similar words, he dropped his leather shield, raised his lance with both hands, and dealt the muleteer so powerful a blow to the head that he fell on the ground in such a sorry state that had it been followed by another blow, he wouldn't have needed a doctor to treat him. Then Don Quixote replaced his armor and continued pacing to and fro with the same composure as before. After a while, another muleteer, not knowing what had happened, because the first one still lay stunned, also came to water his animals. As he went to remove the armor from the trough, Don Quixote, without uttering a word or asking anybody for her favor, again dropped his leather shield and raised his lance and didn't break it over the second muleteer's head, but rather broke the head into more than three pieces because he crisscrossed it with two blows. All the people in the hostelry came running at the noise, the innkeeper among them. When Don Quixote saw them, he took up his leather shield and with one hand on his sword declared, O beauteous lady, strength and vigor of my enfeebled heart, now is the time for you to turn the eyes of your greatness towards this, your hapless knight, on the brink of so mighty an adventure. With this, he felt so inspirited that if all the muleteers in the world had attacked him, he wouldn't have retreated one inch. The wounded men's companions, seeing them in such a state, began to rain stones on Don Quixote, who fended them off with his leather shield as best he could, unwilling to move away from the water trough and leave his armor unprotected. The innkeeper was yelling at them to let him be. He'd already told them he was a madman and as such would go scot-free even if he killed a lot of them. Don Quixote was shouting too, even louder, calling them perfidious traitors and the lord of the castle, a poltroon, and a base-born knight, who allowed knights errant to be treated in such a way, and who, if he had been admitted to the order of chivalry, would have been made to regret his treachery. But to you, vile and base rabble, I pay no heed. Stone me, Come, draw near, assail me as best you can; for you will soon see how you are made to pay for your folly and your insolence. He spoke with such vehemence and spirit that he struck fear into the assailants, and this, together with his innkeeper's arguments, persuaded them to stop, and He allowed them to remove the wounded and continued keeping the vigil of arms with the same composure as before. The innkeeper wasn't amused by his guest capers and decided to put an end to them by giving him his wretched order of chivalry before any of the further calamities occurred. And so he approached him and apologized for the insolent behavior of that rabble about which he'd known nothing. But they'd been properly punished for their impudence. He said that, as he mentioned before, there wasn't any chapel in the castle. But in any case, there wasn't any need for one for what was left to be done because the essence of being knighted lay in the cuff of the neck and the touch of the shoulder according to his information about the ceremonial of the order and all of that could be done in the middle of a field if necessary and his guest had already fulfilled the bit about keeping the vigil of arms because the two hours of it were quite enough and he'd been at it for over four. Don Quixote believed every word he was there ready to obey him and could he please expedite the process as much as possible, for if he were to be attacked again, after having been knighted, he did not intend to leave a single soul alive in the castle, except those whom its lord commanded to be spared, and whom, out of respect for him, he would not harm. The Castellan, thus forewarned, and now even more concerned, hurried away to fetch a ledger, in which he kept the muleteer's accounts for straw and barley, accompanied by a lad carrying a candle end, And by the two maidens, he came back to Don Quixote and ordered him to kneel. And after reading him a while from his ledger, as if reciting some devout prayer, he raised his hand and cuffed him on the neck, and then with Don Quixote's own sword, gave him a handsome thwack on one shoulder, all the while muttering as if praying. And then he commanded one of the maidens to gird on the novice knight's sword, a task performed with much grace and discretion with which she needed to be well provided so as not to burst out laughing as each stage of the ceremony but the exploits that they'd watched and perform kept their laughter in check as the good lady girded on his sword she said may god make you a most fortunate knight, and give you good fortune in your battles don quixote asked what was her name so that he should thenceforth know to whom he was indebted for the favor received because he intended to bestow upon her a share of the honor he was to win by the might of his arm, she humbly replied that her name was La Tolosa, and that she was the daughter of a cobbler from Toledo, who lived near the Sancho Banea market stalls, and that wherever she was she'd serve him and regard him as her lord. Don Quixote replied that, for his sake and as a favor to him, she should thenceforth take the title of a lady and call herself doña telosa she promised to do so and the other maiden buckled on his spurs there ensued almost exactly the same dialogue with the lady of the sword he asked what was her name she said it was la molinera because she was the daughter of an honorable miller from Antequera, and don quixote also asked her to take a title and call herself doña molinera and offered her further services and favors now that these unprecedented ceremonies had been performed at top speed, Don Quixote couldn't wait to be on horseback, sallying forth in search of adventures. where he saddled and mounted Rocinante, having embraced his host, made such extraordinary statements as he thanked him for the favor of dubbing him knight that it would be impossible to do them justice in writing. The innkeeper, concerned only to be rid of his guest replied to his rhetoric in no less high-flown, although somewhat briefer terms, and was so delighted to see the back of the man that he didn't demand any payment for his stay at the inn. Chapter 5 About what happened to our knight after he left the inn It must have been about daybreak when Don Quixote left the inn, so happy, so gallant, so delighted at being a properly dubbed knight, that the very girths of his horse were bursting with his joy. But remembering his host's advice about the essential supplies that he should take with him, and in particular money and shirts, he decided to return home and equip himself well with a squire, resolving to take into his service a neighbor, a poor farmer who had a large family but was well suited to the squirely office. With this in mind, he turned Rosinante toward his home village and the nag half sensing its old haunts began to trot with such zest that its hooves seemed not to touch the ground he hadn't gone far when he thought he could hear coming from a dense wood on his right faint sounds as if someone was moaning and he said i thank heaven for the favor it now grants me providing me with such an early opportunity to fulfill the duties of my profession and gather the fruit of my honorable intentions these cries come no doubt from some man or woman in distress who stands in need of my protection and assistance he turned right and rode over where he thought the sounds were coming from a few steps into the wood he saw a mare tied by the reins to an evergreen oak and tied to another a lad of about 15 naked from the waist up and this was the one who was crying out not without reason because a burly farmer was flogging him with a leather bell accompanying each blow with a word of reproof and advice. Keep your mouth shut and your eyes open. And the lad replied, I won't do it again, sir. By Christ who died on the cross, I swear I won't. I promise that from now on I'll take more care of the flock. When Don Quixote saw what was happening, he fired up and said, Discourteous knight, it ill becomes you to assault one who cannot defend himself. Mount your steed and take up your lance. For the man also had a lance Leaning up against the oak To which his mare was tethered And I shall force you to recognize That your actions are those of a coward The farmer, seeing such a figure Bearing down on him Encased in armor And brandishing a lance under his nose Gave himself up for dead And meekly replied This lad I'm punishing, Sir Knight Is one of my servants And his job is to look after The flock of sheep for me But he's so careless that every day One of them goes missing and although what i'm punishing is his carelessness or his wickedness he says i'm doing it because i'm a skinflint so as not to pay him his wages but i swear by god and by my eternal soul that he's lying you dare to use that word in my presence you villainous wretch said don quixote i swear by the sun that shines down on us that i am minded to run you through with this lance pay him immediately do not answer back otherwise by God who rules us I shall exterminate and annihilate you this very instant untie him the farmer bowed his head and without uttering a word untied his servant whom Don Quixote asked how his master owed him the reply was nine months at seven reals a month Don Quixote worked it and found that it came to 73 reals which he told the farmer to hand over there and then if he didn't want to die. The fearful countryman swore by the tight corner that he was in, and by the oath he would already sworn he hadn't sworn any oath at all, that it wasn't as much as all that, because an allowance and deduction had to be made for three pairs of shoes he'd given the lad, and one real paid for two bloodlettings when he'd been ill. That is all very well, replied Don Quixote, but the shoes and the bloodlettings will be set against the flogging you have given him without due cause. For if he has done some damage to the hide of the shoes that you bought him, you have damaged his own hide, and if the barber bled him when he was ill, you have done the same to him in good health, so that on this account he owes you nothing. The problem is, Sir Knight, I haven't got any money on me. If Andres would like to come home with me, I'll pay him every single real I owe him. Me? Go with him ever again? Said the lad. No fear. "'No, sir, I wouldn't even dream of it, "'so that as soon as we're alone again "'he can flay me like St. Bartholomew?' "'He shall do no such thing,' replied Don Quixote. "'My command will be sufficient to ensure his obedience, "'and provided that he gives me his oath "'by the laws of order, of chivalry, "'into which he has been admitted, "'I shall allow him to go free "'and personally guarantee the payment.' "'Think what you're saying, sir,' said the lad." My master here isn't a knight at all, and he's never been admitted into any order of chivalry. He's just Juan Halduro, the rich farmer from Quintanar. That is of little consequence, replied Don Quixote. There is no reason why someone with a plebeian name should not be a knight, for every man is the child of his own deeds. That's as may be, said Andres, but this master of mine, what deeds is he the child of? seeing as how he refuses to pay me any wages for my sweat and toil. I'm not refusing you anything at all, my dear Andres, replied the farmer. Please be so kind as to come with me. I swear by all the orders of chivalry in the world to pay you, as I said, every single real I owe you, and with brass knobs on too. You may dispense with the brass knobs, said Don Quixote. Pay him in silver reals, and that will satisfy me and take good care to do exactly as you have sworn to do, for otherwise, by the same oath, I swear that I will come back and punish you, and that I will find you, even if you hide yourself away like a lizard. And if you wish to know who is issuing these commands, so as to be more obliged to obey them, know that I am the valiant Don Quixote de la Mancha, the writer of wrongs and injustices, and God be with you, and do not forget for one moment that you have promised and sworn under pain of the penalties prescribed. And as he said this, he spurred Rocinante, and before very long he had got under way. The farmer followed him with his gaze, and as soon as he was certain that he'd ridden out of the wood and was out of sight, he turned to his servant Andres and said, Come here, my son. I want to pay you what I owe you, just as the writer of wrongs had ordered. I swear you will, too, and you'll do well to obey that good knight's command. God bless him, because he's such a brave man and such a good judge. By all that's holy, that if you don't pay me, he'll come back and do what he said to do. And I swear I will too," said the farmer. But since I'm so very fond of you, I think I'll increase the debt first, just as to increase the repayment. And seizing him by the arm, he tied him back to the evergreen oak and flogged him half dead. And now, Señor Andres," said the farmer. You can call upon your writer of wrongs. As you'll see, he isn't going to right this wrong in a particular hurry. But I don't think I've done with the wronging quite yet, because I'm feeling the urge to skin you alive, just as you feared I would. But at length he untied him and told him he could go off in search of his judge so that this gentleman could carry out the sentence he pronounced. Andres crept sullenly away, swearing that he was going in search of the brave Don Quixote de la Mancha to tell him exactly what had happened and that the farmer would pay for it sevenfold but for all that Andres departed in tears and his master was left laughing this was how the valiant Don Quixote redressed that wrong and delighted with what happened and considering that he had made a most happy and glorious beginning to his knight errantry he rode towards his village full of satisfaction and murmuring "Well, you may call yourself fortunate above all women who dwell on this earth O Dulcinea del Toboso, fairest of the fair, for it has befallen your lot to hold subjected and slave to your every wish and desire a knight as valiant and far famed as is and shall be Don Quixote de la Mancha, who, as all the world knows, was but yesterday admitted to the order of chivalry and today has righted the greatest injury and wrong ever devised by unreason and perpetrated by cruelty. Today he was wrested the scourge from the hand of that pitiless enemy who was so unjustly flogging that delicate child. As he was saying this, he came to a crossroads, and this brought to his mind those other crossroads where knights errant would pause to consider which way to go, and to imitate them he remained motionless for a while, and after careful thought he let go of the reins, surrendering his will to that of his nag, which followed its original inclination to head for its stable. After a couple of miles, Don Quixote spotted a throng of people who, as it afterwards transpired, were merchants from Toledo on their way to Murcia to buy silk. There were six of them, each beneath his sunshade, accompanied by four servants on horseback and three footmen. As soon as Don Quixote saw them, he imagined that here was the opportunity for a new adventure and wishing to imitate in every way he believed he could the passages of arms he'd read about in his books, he decided that one had in mind was perfect for this situation. And so, with a gallant bearing and resolute air, he steadied himself in his stirrups, clutched his lance, lifted his leather shield to his chest, taking up his position in the middle of the highway, awaited the arrival of these knights errand, for this is what he judged them to be, and when they came within sight and earshot, Don Quixote raised his voice and striking a haughty posture, declared, You will none of you advance one step further, unless all of you confess that in all the world there is no maiden more beauteous than the Empress of La Mancha, the peerless Dulcinea del Toboso. The merchants halted when they heard these words, and saw the strange figure uttering them, and from the figure and the words they realized that the man was mad, but they had a mind to stay, and see what would be the outcome of the required confession, and one of them, waggish and sharp-witted, said, Sir Knight, we don't know who this worthy lady is. Do let us see her, because if she's as beautiful as you claim she is, we'll most freely and willfully confess that what you say is true. If I were to let you see her, reported Don Quixote, what merit would there be in confessing so manifest the truth? The whole point is that without seeing her, you must believe confess affirm swear and uphold it if not monstrous and arrogant wretches you shall face me in battle forthwith for whether you present yourselves one by one as the order of chivalry requires or as altogether as is the custom and wicked practice of those of your ilk here i stand and wait for you confident in justice of my cause sir knight replied the merchant i beg you In the name of all us princes gathered here, that is, so not to burden our consciences by confessing something never seen or heard by any of us, particularly since it is so detrimental to the empress and queens of La Arcaria and Extremadura, you would be pleased to show us a portrait of that lady, even if no bigger than a grain of wheat, because the skeins can be judged by a thread, as they say, and this will leave us satisfied and reassured and leave you pleased and contented. Indeed, I believe we are already so far inclined in her favor that even if her portrait shows that one of her eyes has gone skew with, and that sulfur and cinnabar ooze out of the other one, we will, just to please you, say in her favor what you want us to say. It does not ooze, you infamous knaves, replied Don Quixote, burning with anger. It does not ooze, I repeat, with what you say, but with ambergris and civet kept in the finest cotton and she is not skew whiff or hunchbacked but straighter than a Guadarama spindle and you shall pay for the great blasphemy you have uttered against such a beauty as that of my lady and so saying he charged with a lowered lance at the blasphemer in such fury that if good and fortune hadn't made Rocinante trip and fall on the way things would have gone badly for the reckless merchant but Rocinante did fall and his master rolled over the ground for some distance, and he tried to get up, but he couldn't. So unencumbered, so encumbered was he by his lance, his leather shield, his spurs, and his helmet, together with the burden of all the rest of his ancient armor. As he struggled in vain to rise, he cried, Flee not, you paltry cowards, you wretches. Bide your time. Tis my horse's fault, and not my own that I'm lying here. One of the footmen, not, it seems, a very well-intentioned one, on hearing all this bluster from the poor fallen fellow, couldn't resist giving him an answer on his ribs. And coming up on him, he grabbed his lance, and breaking into pieces, took one of them and began to give our Don Quixote such a pounding, that in spite of all his armor, he ended up as well threshed as the finest chaff. The muleteer's masters were shouting to him not to hit him so hard, and to stop, but the lad was now so caught up in this game that he wouldn't leave it until he'd played all of his cards out in fury and picking up the other pieces of the lance he shattered them too on the poor fallen man in the face of the storm of blows raining down never stopped shouting as he threatened heaven and earth and those brigands as he imagined them to be. The lad grew tired and the merchants continued their journey supplied with enough to talk about throughout it on the subject of the poor pounded knight Once he found himself alone He again tried to get up But if he hadn't been able to do so When he was and well How was he going to manage to do it now That he was pummeled to pieces Even so, he considered himself lucky In the belief that this was a fitting misfortune For a knight's errand He blamed his horse for it all And it was impossible to get up So very bruised and battered was his body Chapter 5 in which the story of our knight's misfortune is continued. Finding then that he couldn't move, it occurred to him to retort to his usual remedy, which is to think about some passage from his old books and his madness brought to his memory the episode from the story of Baldwin and the Marquis of Mantua, in which Carlotto leaves Baldwin wounded in the forest, a tale known to every little boy, not unfamiliar to youth, celebrated and even believed by old men, yet with no more truth in it than the miracles of Muhammad. It was perfect for the predicament in which he found himself, and so with many manifestos of extreme suffering he began to writhe about on the ground and to say in the faintest of voices what the wounded knight of the forest was said to have said, "'Where are you, mistress of my heart? "'Are you not pained by my distress? "'Maybe you know not of my plight. "'Maybe you are false and pitiless.'" and on he went reciting the ballad right up to the line that go, O noble Marquis, gentle sire, my uncle, and my lord by blood. Fortune decreed that at this point, a farmer from his own village, one of his neighbors, happened to be returning home after taking a hundredweight of wheat to the mill. Seeing a man lying there, the farmer came up and asked him who he was and what was the matter with him, moaning away like that. No doubt Don Quixote thought that this was the Marquis of Mantua, his uncle, and so his only response was to continue reciting his ballad, informing the man of his misfortune and of the love that the emperor's son felt for his wife, exactly as the ballad relates. The farmer was astonished to hear all this nonsense, and removing the man's visor, which had been battered to pieces, he wiped his face, which was covered in dust, and once he'd done wiping he recognized him and said, Senor Quijana, for this must have been his name when he was sane and he hadn't turned to blessed Hidalgo into a night errant. Who's done this to you? But he continued to reply with this ballad to everything he was asked. Sizing up the situation, the farmer took his back and breastplates off as best he could to see if he was wounded, but couldn't see any blood or any signs of any hurt. He managed to lift him up and with great difficulty hoisted him onto the donkey since this seemed the more tranquil animal. He picked up the armor and arms, including the fragments of the lance, and tied them to Rocinante, which he took by the reins, and taking his donkey by the halter he set off in the direction of his village, deep in thought as he heard the nonsense being spoken by Don Quixote, who was no less pensive and so badly bruised that he couldn't keep his seat on the donkey, and every so often breathed sighs loud enough to reach heaven so that the farmer again felt he should ask what is wrong and it must have been the devil himself who made don quixote recall tales to fit the events because at that moment forgetting all about baldwin he remembered abinaderas the moor being captured and taken as prisoner to his castle by the governor of antiquara rodrigo de navarez so that when the farmer asked him again how he felt and what was the matter with him he replied with the very same words and arguments used by the captive Moore to reply to Rodrigo de Navares. As he'd read the story in Jorge de Montemayor's Diana, making such appropriate use of it that the farmer wished himself to the devil for having to listen to such a pack of absurdities, he realized his neighbor was mad and hurried on to the village so as not to have to put up with Don Quixote's interminable harangue more than necessary. It concluded like this. "'You must know, Senor Don Rodrigo de Navarrez, "'that this fair Jerifa I have mentioned "'is now the beauteous Dulcinea del Taboso, "'for whom I have performed, do perform, "'and shall perform the most famous deeds of chivalry "'that have been witnessed, are witnessed, "'and shall be witnessed in this world.' "'The farmer replied, "'Look here, sir. "'As I am a sinner, I am not Don Rodrigo de Navarrez, "'nor this Marquis of Mantua, "'but Pedro Alonso, your neighbor.' and you aren't Baldwin, nor Abanderas, but the Honorable Hidalgo, Señor Quijana. I know who I am, retorted Don Quixote, and I know that I can be not only all of those who I have mentioned, but every one of the twelve peers of France, and every one of the nine worthies as well, because, as all the deeds performed by them singly together will be exceeded by mine. With these exchanges and other similar ones, they approached the village at nightfall, but the farmer waited until it was darker so that nobody could see the battered Hidalgo so wretchedly mounted. When he thought the time had come, he entered the village and went straight to Don Quixote's house, which was in an uproar. The priest and the barber, great friends of Don Quixote's, were there, and his housekeeper was shouting, "'And what's your opinion, Father Pero Perez, sir?' for this was the priest's name, "'about my father's misfortune, "'about my master's misfortune,' Three days had spent now without a trace of him, his nag, his leather shield, his lance of armor, a fine pickle I'm in. It's my belief, as sure as I was born to die, that his brain has been turned by those damned chivalry books that he reads all the time. I remember often hearing him say to himself that he wanted to be a knight errant and go off in search of adventures. The devil take all these books, and may Barabbas take them too, for scrambling the finest mind in all of La Mancha. The niece said the same, and even more. And let me tell you this, Master Nicholas, for this was the barber's name. My uncle would often be reading those evil books of misadventure for two whole days and nights on end, and then he'd throw his book down, grab his sword, and slash the walls of his room. And once he was exhausted, he'd say that he killed four giants as big as four towers, and that the sweat pouring from him was blood from the wounds received in battle and then he'd drink a pitcher of cold water and feel calm and well again, claiming that the water was the most precious draft brought by the famous sage Squiffy, a great enchanter and friend of his. But I'm the one to blame for it all, not telling you gentlemen about my uncle's madness so that you could have done something about it and burned those unchristian books of his before that came to this. He's got lots and lots of them, and they do deserve to be put in the flames like heretics. I agree with that, said the priest. And I swear that before another day has passed, they'll be put on public trial and condemned to the flames, so that they can't make anyone reading them do what my friend must have done. All this was overheard by Don Quixote and the farmer, who could no longer have any doubts about his neighbor's illness. So he began to shout, Open up to Sir Baldwin and the Marquis of Mantua, who's sore wounded here, to the Moor of Abanderas, brought captive by the valiant Rodrigo de Navarres, the governor of Antiquera these shouts brought all four running to the porch as the men recognized their friend and the women their master and uncle who hadn't dismounted from the donkey because he couldn't they ran to embrace him stop all of you for i am sore wounded due the fault of my steed carry me to my bed and if you are able summon the wise ergonda to, to heed and tend to my wounds just look at him in the name of the devil cried the housekeeper didn't I know in the marrow of my bones what was wrong with the master? Up you go, sir. Up you go to bed. We'll cure you well enough without any need for that, there, Ugandan woman. Damn those chivalry books. Damn the lot of them, getting you in such a state. They took him to his bed, and examining him for wounds, couldn't find any. He told them that it had been a general, overall battering sustained when he and his steed, Rosinante, suffered a terrible fall. As he was doing battle with ten giants, the most lawless and reckless giants to be found almost anywhere on the face of the earth. I see, I see, said the priest. So there are giants in this game as well, are there? I swear by the holy cross that I'll burn them tomorrow, before the day is over. They asked Don Quixote a thousand questions, and his only reply was to request food and to be allowed to sleep, for this was his greatest need. And then the priest asked for the farmer to tell him exactly how he'd found Don Quixote. The farmer told him the whole story, including the nonsense that, on being discovered, and transported the knight, had uttered, which made the priest even more anxious to do what the very next day he did, calling his friend and barber, Master Nicholas, with whom he walked to Don Quixote's house.